when we talk to companies and consult for companies, we look at their situation. So if they have a monorepo already, it's much easier to go into the package base first and then transition over to plugin base. That's also something that we will follow up like in the coming months with strategies of, well, I have my package base, I added an X, but now I want more automation. So that's where plugins come in. Hi there, and welcome to Pod Rocket. I'm your host, Paul, and today we're joined with Yuri Strumpfloner. Uh, Yuri is the Director of Dev Experience and Director of Engineering over at Narwhal. Welcome to the podcast, Yuri. Hey, thanks for having me. Hi. So Yuri was actually on a few episodes ago. If you want to check out, we were talking about getting into the beginnings of mono repos and talking about why you would want them. What are they? Like basic basics about this. So go check out that episode if you want a gentle intro. Um, we wanted to have Yuri back on because he gave a talk over at VeetConf and we're going to get more into the topic of mono repos. Um, some details about, you know, minutia about how they're used out in practice and some about what you shared over at VeetConf. So to get right into it, um, I was asking Yuri, what is something that we can immediately hop into that's like different from the last episode? Because a monorepo is a monorepo. It's not a different thing now than it was in the last podcast we had. So one of the things you mentioned, Yuri, was uh, at VeetConf, people seem to know a little less about or were interested in what is a monorepo because it depends on the use case. There's different strengths in the ways that you can set up this developer artifact depending on what your group needs. So maybe we could start and get right into that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, the thing I mentioned before is basically, like, Monorepo's got really, really a lot of traction in probably this year, although they have been around for, like, super long time, right? I've I've been using a Monorepo without even knowing, and just, like, years after, I could, like, oh, this was actually a Monorepo, right? Because I had a couple projects in the same Git repo, right? But the Monorepo c- can be more. Uh, and, and as you correctly mentioned, like, it depends often on the use case. Uh, and so if we right now look out in the, in the wild, most in the JS ecosystem, right? That, that's at least like where we currently focus mostly or from the NX team and from now, like we are most situated in that front end ecosystem. And so if you look at the tooling landscape there and the type of monorepos that we have seen, we try to kind of come up with some sort of classification, right? Because there's a lot of monorepos out there which are, are mostly for um, the, the, the targeted, the end goal of publishing something to NPM, right? Uh, for instance, like take all the, the, the frameworks, uh, like Angular, React, uh, Vite, uh, Vue.js. Like, if you look at their GitHub, it is actually a monorepo, right? So they have a couple of packages in there. Each package has their own package JSON, their own dependencies declared. Uh, they want to still have it in one repo because obviously it's beneficial for developing them together, right? Because maybe like for Vite, for instance, you have the Vite core package, but then you have, for instance, the adapter for React, right? Or the adapter for some sort of other framework. And they obviously are kind of related, right? So you want to have them close to get closely, like, really um, co-located, basically. So instead, like, if you, yeah, if you increment one version, you want to increment other versions as well, or at least, like, test them in the same kind of PR run or whatever, right? Um, and, and so that was one classification. And a lot of the, the monorepos that we see out there follow that type of approach. For instance, if you take Lerna, uh, which is like the monorepo solution that kind of was there for probably the longest uh, in the JS ecosystem, 
Learner had the main goal of publishing stuff, right? So that's also why there's a learner publish command, or the learner version command, right? Well, because that was the main thing that 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 was, learner was good at, right? Um, and so we tried to give those type of monorepos a name, and and we called them kind of we tried to classify them as a package based monorepo. And so why is that? Well, because you have multiple of those packages that can live independently if you want, right? You could really like pull them out of the monorepo and push them into another repo and they have all the dependencies with them and they would mostly work, right? You might have some global tooling and stuff which like are repo-wide, right? But like at a high level, they would already work on their own, those packages. And so that's why we called them package-based repos. And we came up with that name simply because like um, looking from the NX perspective where, where I'm working at, right? I'm, I'm part of the core team at NX. We support like all those different styles, right? But people are kind of confused, right? Because if they look at NX, like from the first perspective, they're like, oh, well, but isn't NX about like plugins? And like I heard about plugins there. And like, you need to have single version policy, like one version per entire monorepo, right? So you just have one React version stuff. Uh, and and so we saw that confusion, right? And we were like, we, we needed kind of an answer to that, right? So to explain to people right? and say like, well, yeah, sure, right? So there are different types of those monorepos. There's the package-based, you can just throw an X on top of it, would work, would just do the task scheduling. You deal with all the tooling uh, and you don't worry about like all the rest. Like you just, you, you can set it up basically on your own. And then, yeah, there's the plugins part, uh, which is like another kind of approach to monorepos, which is a more integrated approach, right? Where you say like, I don't know how to best integrate React with Cypress and Storybook and whatnot, right? So I want guidance, right? And so that's where those plugins come in with NX also kind of delivers, um, where, which help you set that up, right? And manage those tools for you, where you don't necessarily have to deal with the low-level stuff, but at a higher level, you develop your features in a monorepo, the plugins kind of take care of the building and serving and, and integrating with different tooling, make sure that the integration works, right? And so that's the second approach to monitors, which we call that integrated approach, right? So you have those two worlds, the package-based and the more integrated style of monitors. And I guess people's minds immediately kind of go to the package-based system because, I mean, that that's kind of the ethos of Lerna a little bit is you have, you know, it's what we're familiar with. So would you urge people to look at both of those options before starting their project or is there a risk of decision paralysis of, or like, is, is it, is this kind of like 99% of use cases are good with the plugin approach or how do you see that? Um, yeah, it, it kind of really depends like where, uh, like what your context is about, right? Like where you're coming from basically and what is your end goal? So uh, I would definitely to, uh, like tell people like go check out both of them uh, we actually did like uh, invest quite a lot in like the recent months to update our guides on annex.dev like our docs where immediately when you go into the docs you, you see both approaches like front in front there where you have like a small tutorial which really should take like five minutes like covering the package-based monorepo and then you have a similar tutorial uh, that does similar steps right as a package-based which is more integrated style so that you can kind of compare them for yourself right where you see oh well i did this and this and this in the package-based repo approach and then like a, let me try this similar kind of tutorial walkthrough with the integrated plugin-based approach so what what really what did the plugin do for me? Where can it help, right? So um, it's really hard to nail those down, especially because we wanted to make it short so that you don't have to kind of spend an hour or so, right, going to, to both approaches. Uh, but yeah, I would totally urge people to kind of look at that and then try to build up your own mind. But yeah, to kind of come back to your, your things, like 
the package based is probably the first one you would jump at because it looks much simpler, of course, right? Like there's no plugins. Well, I just like do, I work basically however I worked before, right? It's just that now I'm in a monorepo, right? And in fact, there for that simple, for that type of approach, um, it is that the main use case we see there is often also kind of an incremental adoption, right? Where you might have already a monorepo, uh, you might have been using uh, like something like PMPM or NPM or Yarn workspaces, which now have some sort of like package management stuff in there, right? So you might have already used that and you have your monorepo set up, you're like a year in or so, right? And at that point, you're searching for something. That's how many people kind of reach out to us because it works for them, but it's slow, right? Yeah, exactly. But then it's like kind of slow or you want some of more modern features like the caching stuff, right? So what do you, what do you do, right? And so historically before they, they were like looking at an X and they see most of the plugins and that was kind of our fault because we mostly talk just about that part, right? Because we see a lot of benefit there, right? Yeah, because you get excited about what you could do. Like you're like, yeah, exactly. Exactly. If you build that stuff, you're like, well, you can do this completely automated, right? You can do automated migrations and stuff, which otherwise is basically not possible, right? Uh, and so we see still a lot of value there, but obviously looking or like being in a position of where folks have already a monorepo, going to that approach would be much harder, right? Because there's much more stuff to like the, the uptake initially is much steeper, the curve, right? Where you need to look in the plugins, what it is about, and like see how you can migrate. Um, so that's why we now kind of made those two approaches basically equivalent, right? Where you, you are much more vocal about if you have a monorepo, well, you can just go and add an X to it. So you literally just install the NX package, right? Uh, and then you can already start using it, right? There's nothing more you need to do, right? So it would already give you benefits in the sense that you can run commands across your monorepo workspace. Then you can add caching to it. You, you already get those benefits which you might want to use in that specific scenario. So you're making your literally your, your existing monorepo fast, right? And that's it. In the last podcast we have, which again, if anybody wants to learn more about monorepos, um, we also go into other topics about um, distributing your app and caching your app. Check out our other PodRacket episodes and specifically the one with Yuri. We talked about what happens when you set up NX. Well, literally you install it and that's about it. And things start working out of the box, which I think is the the, the big selling point for a lot of people that are trying to get into this. Like as, as somebody who's talking to you now, that's come from Yarn Workspaces. That was so easy. I mean, that was like, it, it felt really cool because Yarn workspaces, it takes a while after a bit once you expand like how large your package.json is. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And it should be, it should remain that easy, right? Like if you're comfortable with that setup because you have it already working, you know how the package local linking and stuff works via Yarn workspaces, right? Then if you just have the problem of like that speed aspect, it should be easy to add something like an X, right? And so we really like made it a lot better. Uh, for instance, like in the last release or the release before, I can't remember out of my mind right now. But w- what we did is basically you can run a command even to do like NX init in an existing monorepo, right? And so what that would do is like, well, add the NX package. And then it would look at all your scripts that you have, your, your NPM scripts, right? And that you're in workspace, for instance. I would ask you a couple of questions in the sense that, okay, which scripts do you need to run like in a certain order, right? Because maybe if you build package A, it should first build all its dependencies and then package, package A itself, right? Stuff like that. There's some DAG. Exactly. But also things like, okay, which of those scripts, which are very custom to your own workspace, right, are cacheable, right? Like, maybe the build lint task commands, but then you have maybe some end-to-end, well, that's not cacheable because it reaches out to a backend API, so you can't really cache it and stuff, right? So 
it asks those questions and then it, it kind of configures that workspace for you. So basically in the end, you end up with that annex package and then annex JSON, which has like cache of operations, colon, and then a list of cache of operations. And so it, it's basically that, right? And so from there on, you can just go ahead, work the same way you did before. Um, like, and yeah, enjoy your workspace, but just faster because now you have the caching. You have potentially also the remote caching because you can attach it. Like basically it comes with everything that Nex offers, but not the plugins, right? And so that would be then the, the second approach that you could then dive in even right from there. And just to be clear for anybody listening, uh, when Yuri's talking about this product, it's NX as in Nancy Xylophone, the letters. Um, and while you were talking, I visited your website. So NX.dev and specifically if you go to slash getting started slash intro, that's where you see there's a um, two big boxes that pop up and you can either click on new package based repo or you can click on new integrated repo. So there are really two top level big like choose your adventure. Yeah. Uh, so you'll be taken care of if you actually take the time to go read the docs. They're up there. Yeah. And it's, it's also interesting. Like it seems to like now that we, we made it more vocal, right? Uh, because as mentioned before, right, it, it was kind of our fault because you could do that already like a year ago, right? It's just that uh, like, we were, uh, to be honest, like we improved here and there some bits like the NX init command, of course, which didn't exist before just to make it even more easy. But you could always just use the very core part of NX and just don't use the plugins, right? But now that we even made them more equivalent, even from entering the docs and everywhere, uh, we also see kind of a transition where maybe before we had 80% of integrated workspace and just 20% of the, the package base. And so now it kind of seems to even out on both of them. Uh, and potentially that might even go big, bigger, right? Especially in the, the open source JavaScript world, I feel like there are a lot of folks that have already their tooling set up, are kind of comfortable with that, works fine for them. So they would just like jump in and for the new project or whatever, they just spin up a very lightweight setup with, with your know, workspace or something like that, right? So this... The package, no, excuse me, yeah, the um, the integrated repo-based approach that allows you to kind of like extend your code base into through plugins and, and all these other um, additional pieces of logic you can put in. Do you think that is more in line with what Narwhal's like end goal for a mono repo system is? And the other one is sort of like the step zero majority use case where it's like we're 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 like putting the bandaid on the wound with this option. But like, if we were to re-engineer the wheel a little bit and like really bring in our magic sauce, this is, that's the direction that your team is sort of like, is, is that accurate or am I overstepping in that? Yeah, kind of, kind of. I, I think like it really depends on your situation because like what we did, for instance, what we do when we talk to companies and consult for companies, we look at their situation, right? So if they have a monorep already, it's much easier to go into the package base first and then, transition over to plugin-based if that's what they want, right? If that's like giving more value to them because you can totally do that, right? That's also something that we will like follow up like in the coming months with strategies of, well, I have my package-based, I added an X, but now I want more automation, right? And so that's where plugins come in. And so we are trying to currently look at situations where you can kind of mix them, right? Where you just have some parts of the monorepo using plugins, but others don't, right? So basically just where you need them. Um, but the whole the whole integrated approach really is something that we see a lot of value in because we have seen it working at super large companies, right? And the problem is mostly always that the, the timing and the, the know-how of people working there, right? Because if you have a large corporation, large teams, like 300, 400 
developers upwards, right? We have seen an X established in those and we consult for such companies, right? Then you have a lot of developers. The main focus is just producing features, right? And so th the main issue that you see coming up in the monorepo uh, over time is it, it becomes really messy, right? Like packages cross-importing from each other without any kind of boundaries around, right? And that's usually, that's not a problem if you're developing your open source project with like 10, 20 folks maybe, right? Which are all highly high experts most of the time and they really know what they're doing, right? But in companies, it's more like, oh, I need to spin up a library quickly, right? And I need to make sure that that kind of boundary in my monorepo but doesn't kind of pull in stuff from that other boundary over there, right? Like basically you need guardrails kind of in place such that people cannot really go super wrong, right? So you have some sort of like safety net around the various art parts in your monorepo. And that, that's where plugins provide obviously a whole lot of value because uh, a plugin in the, in the end is, is most, you can, you can imagine it like a wrapper, like a more intelligent wrapper around an NPM script, right? So rather than seeing the exact webpack config or rollup config or whatever, or Vito or whatever you're using, you see that the plugin on top, which gives you configuration options, right? So it, it definitely limits you. It's more opinionated because it limits you in some sort of the choices, right? Because the plugin makes some choice for you already that are probably optimal, especially if you then integrate it with some other part of the monorep, right? Let's say Cypress tests or, or, or like Jest or whatever, right? Or VTest, right? So that's what the plugin does. Um, and and for, for corporations, this is super valuable because they can take them, right? They can even customize them and say, well, we create our own plugin, which configures your setup in that certain way because that's how our coding guidelines uh, like tell you you should create that React library, right? And so what people then do is, well, they just go in the monorepo, literally right-click if they have the plugin installed, the NX console installed, generate new library. I want to have a React plugin, right? Which respects my corporate guidelines and then it generates it for you, right? So things like that obviously provide a whole lot of value. But yeah, obviously there are more, like you get more tied into a certain type of workflow, right? So depending on whether that's something you need to have, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That, that's the whole point even there, right? To have some sort of opinionated structure. Uh, also because then, uh, as I, I kind of anticipated a bit before, features like automated upgrading to the next plugin version or like upgrading from Webpack 4 to Webpack 5, stuff like that, uh, you can only really do it if, if you have knowledge about that box, right? Which we as plugin authors have, right? We know, well, these are the options you can configure. Uh, that's the place where the files live. That's the place where the config lives. So we can parse it, locate, and upgrade it automatically for you, which is kind of hard, right? Like upgrading JavaScript files is no fun. So like you can't really go in there and like upgrade automatically a Webpack config, right? Or something like that. Um, but yeah, large corporations really find it super useful. Um, but yeah, coming back, it really also depends on your situation. So I wouldn't push too much into one or the other direction. Uh, what I feel is important is that, that you can kind of choose, right? You can go either direction and even kind of mix and match and that's what you're exploring next and go to the website you know look at look at the docs because if you guys put effort in the past month let's have the tech that uh effort realized and people can docs are super hard <laughs> docs is like yeah, yeah it's like i'd love to push people to your docs because yeah they're really hard and then nobody cares when they're done so yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> and, and usually when they're good you don't hear anything but if they're bad people are very vocal about mm -hmm. it <laughs> like which is just really good right like they should be um so, yeah. so when you were at vitconf uh were there was there something else that people maybe responded to more than you would have thought of when you brought up the topic or there were more questions about something. Cause one of the things that we're talking about now, which is 
a point of confusion, which was like, what are these two options that you have for the mono repo? I think another one that you brought up was caching and stuff. And we went into a lot of detail on caching on the last episode, and I'm sure we'll get, get into a little bit more here. But mm-hmm. if there's anything else that uh, has come to mind that you're excited to bring to the table or the community at VidConf. Yeah, I think the main, the main point was mostly about how would I integrate my existing stuff, right? Like how does that work in a monorepo, which ties very much into like overall how a monorepo works and why you would want to have one, right? Uh, and, and we kind of talked a bit about it in the sense that co-location part, uh, also things like, uh, as I mentioned before, like why do, like why does Vid itself develop in a monorepo, like all those different packages? They could literally just have different repositories, right? So it's, it's an aspect of code co-location, but what I find most important uh, is usually like being able in a single PR to run tests against the various aspects of your the entire ecosystem of those packages, right? Like, to, to do you think that this is um, more apt towards like JavaScript projects because of the way that we as developers think? Because in when when we're in TypeScript JavaScript land, we're very like my brain goes straight modular. I'm like, what is the smallest atomic piece of like every piece of logic I can build? Whereas like you're building something in Rust, it's a, it's a little bit different. So do you think a monorepo, of course I've seen it in all languages, but do you think it's mostly for this type of development, for these developers? I think the package-based one might be because like people are already immediately, as you say, like pushed into that kind of package-oriented thing, which like you might even share on NPM, like it's small, like concise, has one single responsibility, stuff like that. I think that might definitely contribute to the whole f- Part that people are more like pulled in towards like those like smaller pieces and then monorepo obviously is the, the solution immediately for like grouping those together because if they need to be living together in some sort then that is kind of the approach that you would go uh, but yeah i totally agree also that it's like it, you see them across really all sorts of like languages because i worked for instance like years ago in net environments and as i've mentioned before like even there you could have like a single like web application written asp.net web api or something right or.net core and you have one project literally and that's it you have folders in there right or uh, what we had even at that time already did kind of split them out into like separate projects just link them right which at first look like you don't really see the benefit but literally that is already a monorepo where like maybe you're more feature-oriented business logic pieces you split them out in different dll's and you just embed them into the main application so you can even link them so that is also something which i feel is a very much a, like a big driver why you would want to go into that more modular approach and where a monorepo can help uh, but yeah there's there's they are across like every every language like we use that literally that was monorepo approach but I didn't know a monorepo like in, some, in the sense of the term monorepo. It just happened that we structured it that way, right? So everything gets a term and gets marketable in the developer world eventually. So e- e- even if I mean, we were on another. Ep- I was on another episode a, a week or two ago, and we were like, "Why? Why are islands called islands?" <laughs> we were doing this ten years ago. Oh wait, marketing. That's why. Yeah. Um, do you think that um, the idea of developing in a linked we'll call it a linked environment i don't want to say mono repo i'll switch between linked and mono repo just so we're thinking about the higher level idea here is that a beneficial way for us as developers to like always move in the how we're structuring our projects because there's a mono repo solution for everything out there ultimately and there are some communities where it's just not practiced as much so in your opinion as the mono repo guy i don't know if you want that title but like you're, you're the monorepo guy. Like, what's your take on other languages and, and communities using this? Yeah, I think the structuring part is something that people don't immediately see. 
uh, but it provides definitely values in the sense that because it's a different the, the thing is like even like if you if you just go away from JavaScript world into the, the net example I made before, right? So why do we even pull those out of the folders into like different projects? Well, because like once you pull it out, like you need to clearly, like you, you have that that boundary, the technical boundary already around that feature or area, right? So everything you expose, you need to actively think about it, right? So you need to think like, what are the items that I want to share with the outside world? And I think that is the, the, the key point when you start to modularize your architecture in sense of like your code your code base in terms of organization, right? Because once you pull it out into a modular piece, well, this is the API I want to expose or this is not the API I want to expose or this is something that needs to be private. And so out of the box, you come up with like a cleaner way of sharing things. While a folder is always just a folder, right? Uh, like regardless of whether it's JavaScript, .NET or some other type of code or Go or whatever, right? So you always, you can link into any piece within that folder without having any kind of restrictions in place. So I think that the whole um, kind of structuring approach is, is very beneficial. And in fact, like we have even like a while back, um, we, we I think I wrote a blog post about how you could use, for instance, NX, like not even talk about monorepos, but just like use it as a replacement for Create React App, right? Because like, what does Create React App do, right? It creates like a new React application. It also abstracts away the Webpack config underneath, right? So you don't have to worry about it, but you can just develop features, right? Uh, and so with the next, you can obviously do the exact same, but you can also kind of start like not just having that big application, a single one, but to split it up into that sm- those modular pieces as we just talked about, right? And so you don't even have to re- mention Monorep, although it is kind of a Monorep at that point, right? Once you have like an app and libraries, but even just from the structural point of view, it helps a lot because if you have different teams, like usually those teams work on different areas, right? And usually those areas are different libraries and stuff, right? So it's even from a team allocation point of view, very, very beneficial. So yeah, absolutely. And then it, it, I think it depends a lot on how it is being promoted in those different languages, right? So whether those languages push into those directions or they're more like, well, you just developed a small piece inside one project, that's it, and you publish it and you go. It's definitely going to depend on the phenotype of who actually fills that gap of needing a monorepo uh, guardrails around it. Yeah, and I love this conversation because it's really, it's helping me as somebody who's only used monorepos as a light practitioner to really wrap my head around this because a monorepo, when you boil it down, it's it's the ideas around the underlying actual content. The monorepo is sort of like contextual uh, syntactical sugar on top that's, as you said, managing what you want to see, what you don't want to yeah, see. It's, yeah, yeah it's less built up than maybe we think about it in our head. It's really just organization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it can totally just be your single project. You don't even have the intention to put another one. Uh, like you just start with one project and you split it up into smaller, more fine-grained modular pieces, right? And you just link it in that one single app. That's it, right? You don't do anything else. But even from that, like over time, it just evolves organically. Uh, like I did that at the company before I actually worked at NX. Like we had a similar setup. Well, we also kind of, we started using an X, but mostly just for the reason of that splitting up and structuring. Because for me, it kind of made a lot more sense because you can work on the authentication part. You can work on the, the, the kind of more front end part, you more the sales process part, right? So those are all individual aspects of the entire application, but those are separate, right? You have a single responsibility and stuff, right? So just that splitting up helped a lot, kind of have a clean, those cleaner separations. And it just happened that at some point it's like, yeah, well, we need also mobile app, right? We we happen to use Ionic. 
And immediately we could reuse some of the pieces Why? because they were like libraries. They weren't meant to be reusable out of the box, right? So you have to adjust slightly or maybe even refactor out, split like one library into two or stuff like that. But it's already there, right? So you, even by looking at the structure, you can already see, well, this could be something reusable and this and this and that, right? While if you just have that big monolithic application structure, it's kind of much harder, right? Uh, to, to impose such a structure. So yeah. I totally find that that fascinating and that approach of structuring code. And and l- the last big benefit, I guess, that comes to my mind immediately that you get to modulize everything is you, know, you can index and cache it at different levels. So if you want to hear more about the tech caching, I, I'm like a broken record here, but for the third time, go check out our other episode. Um, but you're just like really quickly go over this. Uh, you want to talk about how incredible Annex's caching is like you're going to see build time improvements. You're going to see like, honestly, more uh, secure distribution distributed build process for your application. I mean, that's just the the tip of the iceberg, but what do you think is the, the big selling point for most people when you talk about caching? Yeah. 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 The thing is like, once you enter that monorepo space, regardless of whether you have like multiple apps in there or just like a single app, right. Split up into smaller libraries and pieces, uh, now that you have those individual pieces, you can run them individually, right? So the testing or the building of, let's say you have just that out sales and like, I don't know, design system library in your application, right? Now that you have the design system part split out into single library, well, you can just run tests against that single one rather than the entire application, right? Uh, and, and just those focus on that and obviously speed up things, right? Because the thing is like in the monorepo space, once you start in that part, you see the benefit of like the code sharing and like all that, those things that we kind of touched on, right? Obviously, as you add applications, your build times will go up, right? Naturally, right? Of course, because you, now you have just one app and tomorrow you have two, three, four, right? And so it, it increases even if the single builds are fast, right? If you have to run always all the builds, it will slow down, right? So that's the end, that's why you need some sort of solution that can do those more intelligent things like running just whatever got affected in a single PR uh, or in, or things like caching, right? I was just going to say, think about if you were a developer and Docker caching didn't exist, you would be living a sad, exactly. slow life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good analogy because like, it's the same thing, right? You want to have those multi-stage setups where you don't have to build everything from the ground up every time. Uh, and so it's a very good analogy to the monorepo part, right? Well, once you have a larger monorepo, you just want to really touch and run whatever you changed and run, like modified in that that specific PR. And the caching is something that, that kind of adds on top of it, because especially then if you have your CI system and you distribute your cache where you can kind of benefit from a central kind of, you can think about a central storage where all those caches live, right? And you can pull from those caches. Well, then it gets even faster on your machine as well, and not just on CI, because you don't even have to run certain commands anymore, right? Because maybe you pushed up just that change before, your PR ran through like the test run of the design system. Well, I didn't touch the design system, but it gets affected as part of some other change on my side. But it wouldn't run, right? Because you already did that. You already built it. You already ran the test, ran the test for it. And so that's where the caching comes in. Does um, the, the uh, more complicated, like integrated repo approach take advantage of caching in ways that are unique to that more setup than the package-based? No, not not necessarily, because like the caching lives really at the core part of an X, right? So the plugins are really something on top of it. Plugins usually help with code generation, automated migrations, that type of thing. Uh, but the caching is at the core. So basically at the, the 
you can think like the process level because if you add an X without the plugins, it's really just like a fast task scheduler, right? Uh, and with that, an X kind of has the knowledge where when it runs a, ta- runs a task, you can kind of tell an X, look, those are the input files, those are the output files or, or, or folders or whatever, right? And so an X really just caches that as a black box, right? So it runs the task in an efficient way. It gets the results. It stores them in a cache with a hash code, right? And then next time you run it, it just compares. Did I see that hash already? Yeah, it just let me restore everything, right? Uh, and we re- actually go really deep on that side. Like we even go the f- so far that we don't even rewrite again the file system if the files are already there just to speed up things, right? Because obviously file system writing is like costly. So if you like, let's say you build your package and that produces obviously something in this folder, right? Like JavaScript and CSS files and stuff. We don't rewrite that if that C- CSS file is already there and it's the same in, as in the cache, right? So we really optimize down to the lowest level. Uh, but that's actually what the caching does for you, right? And that is already in the, the core of an X. So regardless of where you go, more the package-based approach or the more integrated approach, it would be you would benefit the same way. You get both of them. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and this, this, the stats there are really crazy. Like we, um, like especially if you distribute them, right? Like that's the key goal, right? In the end, like locally on your machine, it always caches, right? So you would get fast runs, uh, but obviously it makes much more sense if you're like integrated with your CI system uh, and even like shared across coworkers, right? So you your own builds get faster even by using caches from other machines. But now that we have like those cache results aggregated, uh, we also looked at a couple of stats and those are crazy. Like uh, uh, we pulled them out, I think like from... Let me actually look them up. I think like they are from three weeks ago or something. But basically on the public cloud, because we have a public cloud version where you can like connect to, but we also have like on-prem solutions uh, for which we don't have stats, right? Because they live in the company's like own networks uh, and Kubernetes clusters or whatever they have set up there. But just from the public cloud version, like we have like in a week, we save a, a, around seven years of caching, right? So that's like seven years of computation time saved per week, which is kind of crazy, like if you think about it, right? Because like those are processes that never ran. Like on a CI system, they were never executed, but you just got the result back and that's it, right? That's literally computation time saved, basically. Uh, which was also kind of the reason why, uh, like at VidConf, my talk was something like speed up your CI with caching to save the environment. I was going to, that's what I was going to say. You're saving so much CO2. Like, that's an immense amount. Immense. <laughs> Absolutely. Because that's not a machine that gets spin up. Like there's no like energy consumed. Like that's a process that didn't run, uh, although it would have run otherwise, right? Uh, so yeah, it's, it's kind of fun. And th- this is just from the public cloud because like we have like savings from uh, customers on, on-prem, which like one of the biggest, like they save, I think like 14,000 hours a week, which is like couple, like, it's crazy. Like that's a week, right? That's just from a single one, right? So um, no, it is, it's, it's impressive. Like how much time went into that and like, how much time gets saved from, from those caching, this real caching setup. It, it boggles m- my mind just in general to like wrap your head around what isn't cached and what could be cached because like we're at a point in tech now where it's easy to just be wasteful. It doesn't cost us extra. So when you step back for a second, you're like, wait a minute. I already did that. It, it happens a lot, way more often than we think. And I think this, these stats you're pulling out really exemplify that. Seven years, listeners, seven years. That is, 
that's pretty crazy. Yeah, just in a week, right? Like that's just just in a week. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. I wish I had like was better at English. That's ludicrous. We're ludicrous speed. That yeah. Well, Yuri, thank you for your time. I we could keep going on about this, but we're almost at 40 minutes. Again, look at us. So I'm gonna throw one link out here for the listeners, which is the nx.dev slash getting started, getting dash started. There's a dash between them. Slash intro. Mm-hmm. Yep. nx.dev slash getting started slash intro so you can find the the guide about the package-based repo or the integrated repo what we spent a lot of the time talking on the podcast today if you want to learn more about the caching we have that other episode and Yuri, if people want to find you on twitter or the blog that you mentioned where's where is where's your blog located yeah we mostly basically tweet and blog on on nx dev tools so if you go at at nx dev tools that will be the twitter handle for nx itself uh, it's the same handle we also use on youtube uh, and the blogs we cross post them usually to dev.to which is easiest so dev.to slash nx uh, you would find all the blogs there and there's also the blog post about i think there's uh, yeah about the cache savings and helping the environment and stuff because there's a fun website where you can actually give it the cache results, like the time saved, right? It would translate them to CO2 emissions, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, because then you can kind of compare, oh, that would actually be a flight back and forth to New York, right? There's something like that, which is like, oh, wow, that's great. So yeah, yeah, it's fun. So you so really, you could compare with the hash of the cache and you could be like, how much was this saved? No, basically, if you, you can go to the website. There's a website out there. Uh, I don't call it out of my box, but it's linked in a, the blog post. Oh, okay. Where you can give it, okay, like what is like 20 hours of computation on like a medium machine on AWS or something where you would run your build basically. And it would then sell, tell you, well, that would be like a flight from New York to San Francisco or like driving a car for a year or something like that, right? But it kind of gives you more feeling of the CO2 emissions, which kind of get go into those, those that computation. Yeah. Well, thanks again for your time, Yuri. And hopefully we can turn some more people onto NX after this, as is always the case now with these episodes and save some more trees and their time. Yeah, thanks for having me.